Hello, hello, and welcome to Football Outsiders, the takeaway show where we round up all the hottest takes from around the NFL media landscape, do a little deep dive, hold them accountable, just see how hot, how right these takes are. My name is Kale Clinton. With me, as always, is my co-host, Jackson Roberts. We've got a lot to get into, but we always start off with a Thursday night roundup, and I think this might be the best lead-in from a Thursday night game we've had in a long time. This was the craziest Thursday night game from a take perspective, I think, of the year. Certainly not the most exciting matchup on paper, but for a game between 5-7 and seven and 3-9 and nine teams, has to have delivered more than we could have expected, mainly because of the Amazon Prime quarterback. <laughs> uh, Two-night overnight shipping, Baker Mayfield. <laughs> Listen, if if there's a uh, if there's a way to advertise your delivery system while also advertising your football product, Baker Mayfield is the center of that Venn diagram. Coming in two days' notice, whole broadcaster talking about the plane ride that Sean McVay and Baker Mayfield took across from Carolina to LA, getting themselves acclimated to the situation, to the offense in Los Angeles. And while we won't be talking Baker, because at this point, we're a little late to market. Everyone's got their takes on Baker. There's not much more additive that we can bring. Amazon Prime, member of the Thursday Night Football desk, Richard Sherman, eat a little crow in front of Baker for a take that he had leading up to the week. Let's just touch on that quick because it's rapid fire. I don't think he makes any sense anyway. I'm sure he can back somebody up. But, you know, people give too many opportunities to these quarterbacks in the first round just because they got picked in the first round. If you treated them like you do fifth, sixth round, seventh round picks, then, you know, how would you look at their body of work versus, you know, hey, you got all the talent in the world and quote unquote ceiling and yada, yada, yada. You know, I'm sure somebody would give him another opportunity because he went so high in draft, but um, I wouldn't. Tough one there. Sat across from him on the desk after leading a 13-point game-winning drive comeback. Fantastic showing by Baker Mayfield. We could go across the NFL landscape. There was good, bad, and in-between on Baker. Let's take a different approach. Yeah, because who's going like long-term on Baker right now is the other thing. One night, great story. A lot of people coming out with takes on one night. I haven't seen anyone stand on the table and say, 2023 Rams, Baker Mayfield is leading them to the playoffs. Now, that would be a take. Haven't seen it yet. Listen, great opportunity for an audition. Great opportunity just for him to even out some of the good and bad press that he's gotten uh, since entering uh, the Carolina Panthers quarterback uh, carousel, I suppose. Let's talk about the other side of the ball. Let's talk about a Raiders team that blew a 16-3 lead with the Rams having no timeouts, pinning them on the two-yard line, and letting a two-days-notice quarterback march down. This is from John Middlecoff, three-and-out podcast over at The Volume. Let's, let's, just, let's just let John tell it himself. This is, this is gold. Whenever you get some historic I – I know it's not historic, but like – on the on based on this season, that's one of the more bigger wow wins of the season. Well, on the flip side, that's one of the bigger holy shit losses of the year. 
that loss tonight is worse than the Jeff Saturday loss. Honestly, it might not be close. I mean, they were up 16-3 in the fourth quarter. There have been two improbable losses by the Raiders this season. Losing to a head coach who comes off the ESPN get-up desk. Only his high school coaching experience on four days' notice. Loses to them. Now you get the Amazon Prime shipping quarterback. Winning a game on two days' notice in a new offense. Walking off the bench and doing so. Put it on the meter, Jackson. This Raiders loss is worse than the Jeff Saturday loss. So... On the meter, it's it's like bordering on hot. I'm actually going to stick it in lukewarm. I think it's not even... I, I'm going to go with that Arizona Cardinals 20-0 halftime lead is their worst loss of the year, honestly. That was the first time we saw this Raiders team being like, oh my, there are some serious issues here. You give this team a huge lead, doesn't mean anything. The Jeff Saturday loss, while bad, it's like, what does Jeff Saturday... First of all, he had the layup of all layups of putting Matt Ryan back in at quarterback. That, if we had known going into that game that Matt Ryan was going to be playing instead of Sam Ellinger, I think people end up a lot less surprised than they initially were all week leading up to that game, thinking there's no way the Colts can win that game. Last night, I'm actually going to agree is worse than the Jeff Saturday loss because... I mean, come on. Baker Mayfield had no time to prepare for this whatsoever. Not only that, but the string of things that had to go wrong in the last eight minutes of that game for the Colts to be able to win. Really 12 minutes, because let's let's dive into it just a little bit here. Yes, With 12 please. minutes left, the Raiders end up forcing what looks to be a three and out on the Rams. And just as they're getting ready to punt it away, you have Cleveland Farrell jumping off sides on the punt giving them a first down and eventually leading to a touchdown on that drive. Then the Raiders later in that drive, Max Crosby also jumps offside on third and four when he could have held him to a field goal or gotten the fourth down stop. Then they get the ball back with 315 to go. They face third and one with 238 to go. Josh Jacobs stuffed on a horrible play call and then you punt it away on fourth and one. Uh, ben Baldwin's win probability model says that was a minus 4.2% win probability uh, with a punt as opposed to a go for it. So just add another thing under that wrong uh, list of things that could have gone wrong. Then you get the punt that gets down at the two. Just look at them celebrate when they down that punt at the two. They think the game is over. Matt Collins is doing the gritty along the sideline as the ball is still rolling towards the goal line. AJ Cole's doing the wipe your nose Matt Judon celebration like he just had the punt of the year. Then on that drive, you get an interception on third and two nullified by a DPI. You get a nine yard sack nullified by Jerry Tillery slapping the ball out of Baker Mayfield's hand. Basically, after that, all you needed was four Baker Mayfield plays to keep them, to put them in the win column after the Raiders have been keeping them on life support for 15 minutes. And just to rub salt in the wound, Baker goes, hey, to be honest, I was completely shocked they lined up in press coverage with 15 seconds left. That is situationally as bad as it gets. I still think the Cardinals loss is worse somehow, but this is right up there. And I do agree that it's worse than Saturday. Laying it out as well as we have, as you have, really articulates just how moronic this loss was. Like, uh, Middlecoff goes on to mention that how long has Josh McDaniels been around Bill Belichick? How long has he been a Patriots disciple? And while he is not doing the typical, like, you know, 
Matt Patricia having guys on stairs or like doing the, you know, hard nosed coaching thing. The biggest praise that anyone can give Belichick is the execution on the minor details. Like the silly slap in the ball out of a guy's hand. And like, that's just, that's simple. Like that's a free 15. That's a net swing of 24 yards. Not only that, but it's, you a got reset the sack, So that keeps the clock moving with a minute 20 to go. Now you stop the clock, nullify the play, give them 15 yards. They end up scoring the game-winning touchdown with 10 seconds left. They wouldn't have had time to get down there if you don't commit that penalty. On top of it, I look, I think this is – I think it's lukewarm. Actually, I, I think it's a little cold because it's pretty obvious to me, like you said, much worse loss than the Colts, not only in situation, but expectation. When you have this good of a team, yeah, you, you like this was already a playoff caliber team, even if it's by the skin of their teeth, it's a playoff caliber team that made the playoffs last year. You then add Devontae Adams, you give extensions to Hunter Renfro and Darren Waller, who have admittedly been very banged up this season. Makes it hard. You've got a bona fide, really good edge in Max Crosby, and you add Chandler Jones on top of that. You're getting good production out of lower guys on the roster like a Mac Holland. You've got a great, almost career performance out of Josh Jacobs at this point. And you're not making the play. Like, like you're pretty much destined to have a losing season at this point. But that being said, this is a team that had elevated their playoff expectations, had strung together three straight wins with pretty gutsy performances, two on the road against Denver and Seattle, an additional one with a win over the Chargers. This was supposed to be your cakewalk game. The New England game you were looking ahead to in the Josh McDaniels revenge game was supposed to be the hard one. And now you drop this and you're basically toast. This is about as big of a letdown performance as you could have. Essentially shooting yourselves in the foot. This is now a lost season. Yeah, I mean, it was honestly not even a thought in my mind that they would lose that game until they got stuffed on third down and all of a sudden they're punting it away. And it's like, oh, they might actually blow this. This this felt like the banker of all bankers. They should have been up. Recall, they should have been up two, maybe three scores at halftime before Derek Carr basically, you know, tinkled his pants at the five-yard line and threw that ball up for grabs. That's at least three points he costs you right there. Should have been a two-score game at the end. You give them the ball back on the two-yard line. That was the longest uh, game-winning touchdown drive with no timeouts under two minutes in the last 45 years in the NFL. 98 yards. But that's... To, to stack all that up and to know that it's a 3-9 and nine team and this game was a game you absolutely had to win to keep your season on life support. Like, we have another show where we do head-scratchers of the week, Kale. This is the head-scratcher of the year so far. It is a it is a tough, tough loss for this team. What was looking to be a potentially promising playoff push, all but squandered at this point. Speaking of playoff pushes, Jackson, that brings us right into our headlines. Let's talk about a team that has been a playoff favorite 
a, a, a virtual lock for the playoffs at this point that hasn't quite lived up to their record. We're talking Minnesota Vikings, Jack. Mm-hmm. Keyshawn Johnson over at first take, despite the fact there's been a uh, a bit of a disparity between uh, the analytics community and the Minnesota Vikings in projection versus reality. Keyshawn Johnson believes the Vikings can very much make the Super Bowl. Let's hear it from Keyshawn. But it's all about matchups, and it's all about seeding. And if you get the right matchup and the right seeding in the playoffs and you miss a certain opponent, for years, Pittsburgh Steelers ran up against the New England Patriots. But yeah. whenever they missed them, they got to the Super Bowl. So it's like, are they going to miss a Dallas or miss a Philadelphia or catch a Philadelphia hobbled at the time or catch a Dallas hobbled at the time? When you got playmakers on the offensive side of the ball and you can score and you miss that defense in Dallas, you somehow you get around them. and They, they got eliminated by somebody. They did the Dallas thing you always screaming about. Now you play against Philadelphia. Maybe come the outcome is maybe different this time around. Okay. So it's a legitimate well, shot. Mm-hmm. So it's not just right. poo-poo it. They're 10 and 2 for a reason. Okay. 10 and 2 for a reason. The Vikings can very much make the Super Bowl if they have the right path. Put it on the meter. For a reason, Kale. Um, they can't. I, I'm going to be the one to put my flag in the ground and say they can't make the Super Bowl. So for that reason, I'm going hot take, wrong take. Um, love Keyshawn in general. And I don't think he's he's not like planting his flag in the way that I am. He's not saying they're going to make the Super Bowl. That's why I'm not putting it in super hot. But, I mean, come on. So Aaron Schatz does a great analysis this week. 10-2 and two teams historically DVOA. They're by far the worst 10-2 and two team. And actually... If you lower the criteria to just teams that are nine and three or worse, they're still the worst second team by DVOA. Of the worst 12 teams to be at least nine and three and have a DVOA this bad, only one has ever made it to the Super Bowl. That was the 99 Tennessee Titans. They at least had a positive DVA of three and a half percent. This team, negative five and a half percent. No team with a negative DVOA at this point in the season being at least 9-3 and three has made it to the Super Bowl, and that is the direction I think the Vikings are going. I Okay. Ugh, this is tough. Okay. I'm going to put it in hot, and I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'd like to present first that one of the most indicative – Metrics for overperformance is record in one-score games because those are relatively even games. They're not luck is a spicy variable to throw in, but they're a little luck-based. Things bounce your way. Things help you out along the way. Jackson, the Vikings this season are 9-0 in one-score games. They're one loss. Their two losses, sorry, are a 24-7 loss to the Eagles and a 40-3 loss to the Cowboys. If I could jump in there, fascinating graphic I saw this week. Don't know where I saw it, can't pull it back up. But if you reversed 
the scores of all the one-score games in the NFL this year, it's actually pretty fascinating. A lot of teams stay in the playoff picture. The Niners would still be 8-4. and four. You get a couple teams like the Jags and the Lions bumping up, which makes sense. These are teams that DVOA stats say they're better than we think we are. If the Vikings had lost all the one-score games they'd won, they would be 1-11. I mean, that is that is insane. They have not beaten anyone. Uh, they have one win that's not by one score. So that being said, it happens all the time, Jackson. This kind of thing happens. Look, look at the Cincinnati Bengals of last year. They, in a loaded, Pretty, pretty loaded playoff picture. End up getting a Raiders team that, while it ends up looking like a close game, is just an absolute rollover by the Raiders for most of that game. Cincinnati is clearly better. You get a Titans team that you are very equipped to just leave in the dust considering the makeup of their roster. And then you get the Kansas City game, which ends up in a historic comeback for Cincinnati. But it still took a historic comeback to overcome that, even though it's the Chiefs. Like, you miss the Bills in that rotation. You're missing some very quality teams. And also, you had the wild card pretty much break your way with, you know... A decent Colts team missing out. A decent Chargers team missing out. The Steelers getting in. Giving <laughs> just a, a a hobbled Ben Roethlisberger one last swan song to kind of croak out before his career ends. And he goes into retirement. Like, paths get set up for you pretty well. There's a re Like, it's tough because there is a reality where... like. You're going to run into a good team in the postseason. It's the postseason. But there's a reality where Minnesota catches like a shaky. Uh, like, let's say they start off with an NFC East team in the first round. They get a Giants or a Commanders who hobble into the postseason. They get a winner of whoever gets the NFC West in a maybe probably Brock Purdy-led 49ers or a offense-heavy Geno Smith Seattle Seahawks. Then you just got to get to that NFC Championship and you've got enough of a record in one-score games where, like, you've pulled off the fourth-quarter heroics before. It can't be that big of pressure for you. Uh -huh. like when have they not played one-score games, Kale? Against the Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys. Who are you going to see in the NFC Championship game, the winner, most likely, of the Philadelphia Eagles versus the Dallas Cowboys. I do not see it happening. But you look, let's say they catch the Eagles. That's a team that no longer has Dallas Goddard. That's a team that that's a team of Quest Watkins banged up. That's a team that is no long that you know could not have CJ Gardner Johnson. And it's like you don't know what's going to happen in the next month and a half. Even though the Eagles are hurt, you can play this game all day. Like injuries happen in football. The Eagles I, are a lot better than the Vikings. We're playing the exact same game. 
This is a luck-based Minnesota Vikings team. If they just keep riding four-leaf clovers and lucky horseshoes and rabbit's feet, there's a world where they can make the playoff. I'm just saying, Keyshawn very much has a point. And if you're going to play devil's advocate, there's a path there. If you're going to use the example of the Bengals, I don't like it because we have seen not just last year, but this year, how that Chiefs matchup is really nice for the Bengals in terms of the defenses that they can put together in order to slow down Patrick Mahomes. And obviously the Chiefs just can't stop the Bengals going the other way. The Vikings, I think the Eagles and Cowboys are both horrible matchups for the Vikings because they have the talent in the secondary to at least be able to slow down Justin Jefferson somewhat. Uh, those are two teams where if you're going to beat them, you're going to have to do it heavy in the ground game. You're going to have to keep the ball out of their hands. And while Dalvin Cook is talented, I don't think he's doing the things he's been capable of this year. Their run blocking as a team is generally bad. And that's the thing about Minnesota is if you like go into their DVOA stats, pretty much everything is below average. There's not one thing aside from the magic of Justin Jefferson and the close game luck gene that they seem to have that they actually do well. Whereas if you like, I mean, the Bengals, you can obvious, you can identify their strengths last year. And I don't think you can do it as well with this year's Vikings. And I just, it comes down to like, can Kirk Cousins be that guy in the playoffs as well? There's too many factors here for me to be able to stand on the table and say the Vikings can do this. All I'm saying is there's a path. And if you pick up enough wins, you know, maybe the difference between adding TJ Hawkinson helps put a few more points on the board against the Eagles. There's also that sort of second matchup theory that really shrinks the divide between teams. There's a lot of factors that could come in. And if you catch a good team at a good time, who knows what's going to happen. Kicking in the NFC North. Jackson. We are going with the the take Smith, like the most genius idea for this show. We all, we've only used it once in the history of the takeaway because it's almost a little too derivative. It is too perfect to use for this show. It is a breaking case of emergency or breaking case of a fantastic conversation. I am, of course, talking about the ringers, the island. Nora Princiati hosts a show solely dedicated to hot takes and great arguments and a little bit of devil's advocate sprinkled in there. Perfect, perfect for this show. Perfect for today, Kill, because apparently you have your devil's advocate hat on. You're ready to go. Jackson, Danny Kelly of The Ringer. His island that he'd like to stand on, the Lions should build around Jared Goff. I don't know. Like, I, basically, what I'm saying is, I look at this offense and, and this team overall, and I'm like, the offense is not the problem. And it's probably only going to get better once Jamison Williams gets in there. You get DJ Chark a little bit more healthy. DeAndre Swift gets up to full health. Um, this could be a really good high scoring offense. The defense is what needs to improve. And so um, I say it a little tongue in cheek, but I do think that they should just continue on this course with Jared Goff as their quarterback and just try and build the defense and see if they can contend right away. Kelly lists off a bunch of stats where no matter how you slice it, this is a great, eh, very good Lions offense. Sixth in points per game, seventh in yards per game, 
ninth in offensive DVOA, seventh in red zone DVOA, fourth in third and fourth down DVOA, ninth in EP, uh, Jared Goff is ninth in EPA per dropback, sixth in total EPA, 10th in touchdowns, 11th with a 95 passer rating and has a 60 QBR. Jackson, the Lions should build around Jared Goff, put it on the meter. There's, sorry. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be a cut or what, but should also be noted that this conversation is contingent on a couple things. Like the Ram or the Lions being able to keep their offensive coordinator. Jamison Williams hitting. Jared Goff continuing to operating. Uh, Jared Goff continuing to operate well out of play action. Jackson, the Lions should build around Jared Goff, put it on the meter. I didn't hear the Lions should build around Jared Goff. I heard the Lions should stay the course with Jared Goff. Those are two very different arguments to me. If you're telling me, let's roll into next year with Jared Goff, see how it goes, use that high first round pick we're getting from the Rams, which by the way, would have been a lot better pick if the Raiders could have held on in the fourth quarter last night. And let's, you know, let's see what we've got next year and try to contend right away. I like that take. I'm going to I'm gonna say that's a lukewarm take. If the take is let's re-up Jared Goff because we think he's actually a guy to build around, then that is a flaming hot take. So I didn't really hear that language in the take, Kale. You list all those stats. To me, I hear, you know, they're sixth in this, they're seventh in that, they're ninth in this. How good could they be if they had a franchise quarterback instead of a limited, you know, good at times, operating well out of play action. If you pressure him, he falls apart, quarterback like a Jared Goff. What could that offense be if they legitimately had a guy there? That's that's where I think the argument kind of falls apart a little bit for me is because, yeah, this offense is good because they have really nice weapons like an Amon Ross St. Brown, like a solid ground game, both backs contributing this year. Maybe Jamison Williams elevates them even a little bit more. They have a good offense because Ben Johnson has been a great first-year play caller and might be a head coaching candidate. So yeah, of course they have to keep him if they want Jared Goff to keep operating at this high level. To me, it's like, run it back next year, but don't fall in love with the stabilizer at quarterback when long-term in order to really compete, I think you need a little bit more out of the position. Let me first start by saying, Listen, when you dedicate a half hour to a single take, you're going to miss parts. The episode is called The Lions Should Build Around Jared Goff. The take that he initially presents is The Lions Should Build Around Jared Goff, admittedly through stifled snickers and stifled laughter that even Princiati gets in on. That is the structure of the take. That being said, he really only... Like, it's it's what you're saying. Golf is on contract through 2024. He really only refers to sticking the course through the length of that contract and then figuring something out. That being said, with that being the take, love it. Sure. Luke Womtacold, I think 
this is the perfect scenario for the Lions to take an Anthony Richardson out of Florida. Someone who is a player that NFL personnel in or NFL front office people in reports have called a two-year prospect. Someone who really needs work, but absolutely has the tools to be a very good offensive player. There's no one in this draft that is surefire. And in earnest, there's never surefire picks. But when you look at this class, someone has even likened, there's there's uh, one draft guy whose name I forget, likened TJ Stroud to Jared Goff. Because the situation has to be perfect for him to show his most elite talent. Even Bryce Young, who is that guy, is Hemi Neutron. Our guy Derek Klassen doesn't seem to think so. Short. He's a short guy. He's absolutely got flaws. Like, the most ideal prospects, the guys that are being projected to go in the top of this class, have flaws. So they're not surefire. The guys that are surefire are, like, Alabama's Will Anderson, Georgia's Jalen Card. Like, the defensive prospects in this class are awesome. And this Lions offense is bad. <laughs> if you can figure out a way to take, like, you're spending, I think the Lions sit at 13. And there are, like, a couple things have to bounce their way for them to make the playoffs. But they're not far off. Like, if you take your pick in the early to, like, you take your Rams pick, which is going to sit somewhere in the top six of this year's draft, depending on how things shake out. And you take your pick, which is going to sit in the middle to back end of the first round. You can get one or two really strong defensive players and then try and get a project like a Richardson. Because if you just, like, Things don't last forever in the NFL, Greg. The Colts used to have a fantastic offensive line. They don't. The like Steelers used to be a wide receiver factory. Now they kind of have one or two guys. Like The things that are considered universal tenets in the NFL only last for stretches. Look at like, dy- like dynasties crumble and fall every year. Or, or rise and fall every year. Right? The Lions have a good offensive line right now. Have two strong running backs. Have a really good wide receiver core. And have like are getting some really big hits on defensive prospects outside of, you know, your typical Aiden Hutchinson. You're getting hits on guys like an Aleem McNeil. You're getting performance out of six-round pick James Houston, who has three full sacks on 17 snaps played this season. He was playing like he shot out of a can. Like, you are able to get young draft prospects and your offense is already there. If you can just make this work for a year or two and add minor tweaks, get some like long-term stuff, you're going to set up a great runway for a project quarterback to come in and make it work. There's again, some contingency plans. There's a couple things that you have to have bounce your way, but there's a path where this current roster plus some pieces is playoff caliber. The NFC North, by the way, we've said it, is weak. Bears are far. Packers are going the wrong direction. 
and we just spend 10 minutes talking about how the Vikings aren't that guy. This is a division for the take. This is mean um, because this wasn't really that much of a consideration in the draft. And it's I'm in no way trying to like pick on Aiden Hutchinson here. But how awesome would it have been if the Lions had taken Sauce Gardner at two this year instead of Aiden Hutchinson, knowing that this upcoming draft is stacked with defensive line prospects and they're going to be drafting in that range to maybe get Will Anderson, a Jalen Carter, uh, maybe a Miles Murphy out of Clemson as well. Man, you build out that secondary with an elite prospect like Sauce Gardner, who already looks like a top five corner in the league, and then this is the year you go and get your guy up front. I feel like that would have worked out so perfectly. And there isn't really like an elite corner prospect, safety prospect that I can see this year that compares with what Sauce was coming out last year or even like a Stingley last year. Uh, so that's just like some wishful thinking totally gets away from the the argument we were just making. And most of your points I agree with, uh, but man, that just got me thinking like, what if it's tough because last year was supposed to be the big defensive end class. Like last year was in Hutchinson came on Thibodeau. Honestly, the Jaguar sneaking in taking uh Trayvon, Trayvon Walker. I screw up the name constantly. Coming in and taking him and letting Hutchinson fall into the lap, he like that was the Lions getting a gift of who was supposed to be the bona fide number one. Like, I that just looks like he might be the best of the three. Hutchinson, look, Hutchinson has been very good and he's honestly improved. Like, it's it started off the year where he had that one three sack game and all of them recovered sacks. Like, he's getting better in pressure. He's a smart guy. Like the interception he had on Daniel Jones where he fakes a stunt and then drops back into coverage. Like he's learned. I, I, I see him as a, I see him as a prospect that can continue to build, but also there's nothing wrong in having two edges. <laughs> there's nothing wrong in having cap control. Like these guys are getting paid 25, 30 million a year. Now they're getting paid the same way top wide receivers are at the elite level. There is no reason you can't have Aiden Hutchinson and Will Anderson on the same team. Yeah, or build from the inside and get your run stopper as well, because obviously teams have been running all over and passing all over the Lions this year. So let's get somebody to effectively combat both. There's a lot of ways for this team to improve. But if you can just land a project quarterback, I think this is an awesome team. They get their own two picks and maybe the top 13 or so. And I think you can get Richardson in the second. I don't think, I think this is going to be a quarterback draft like last year where we push all the prospects to the top. I don't think it's going to be as bad as, you know, Pickett going 20 is the first guy off the board. But, like, Bryce Young's going to go to, like, someone's going to go to the Texans. There's going to be maybe a second guy in there. And then a lot of the other guys, like Levis and Anthony Richardson, uh, a Hendon Hooker, like, project guys or guys that need to heal up, like Hooker, are going to go later. Like, there's not going to be as much capital spent. So it'll be interesting to see. We can't be the arbiters of takes without putting our own up to scrutiny over at Football Outsiders. This week, we're dipping into the takesmith himself, Mike Tanier, over here on FO. We've talked a lot about this guy in the powder blue and gold. Mike Tanier takes the internet. What if Justin Herbert isn't all that great? Basically gets in to... Herbert has the traits. Herbert may be developing. 
But as of right now, Herbert cannot yet be anointed. He walks through a pretty middling, pretty bad performance against the most recent Las Vegas Raiders. Gets into the statistical measurements of DVOA and DYAR, which Herbert is not performing well in. You get into how he performed against great quarterbacks or quarterback prospects of years past and just how the scenario has been laid out before him. And you get into the commentary provided by the rest of the league, good and bad. Jackson, Justin Herbert, just not that guy yet. Put it on the meter. Uh, it's it's hot. I think we've said a lot about Justin Herbert on this show and how much we believe in him. Um, I love how Tanier embraces himself as, you know, kind of the curmudgeon throughout this article. It's very self-aware. Um, highly recommend reading it. It's it's funny. It's it's inquisitive. It's everything you expect from the guy. Um, I love how he says it without saying it. Uh, the exact point that Emmanuel Acho has been making for the last month about Justin Media is a so uh, Justin Media <laughs> Justin Herbert's a social media quarterback. Um, he he talks about uh, Justin Herbert versus perceptions. Justin Herbert leads the NFL in splooshy highlights and Twitter fawning, uh, and points out how he basically had one touchdown play that entire Raiders game, but it's the play the entire internet seizes on. Uh, but then he also kind of goes on a little bit to say. You know, he doesn't come through in the final moments, but then points out all the ways it wasn't Herbert's fault in that they run it to Austin Eckler on first down, they throw a dumb screen pass to Austin Eckler on second down, and then Keenan Allen trips and falls on his third down sluggo route. Like, I don't hear anything. Like, there's a lot of things that have gone against Justin Herbert this year. That's just another of them. He's not getting any help from anyone at any time. It doesn't help the cause that Herbert... Keenan Allen looks cooked. Keenan Allen looks like he's got barbecued hamster. Like, he is not the same route rider he once was. The injuries have really hampered the guy. And there is not many fall-off-a-cliff kind of post-30-year-old turns I've seen quite like Keenan Allen. If you take him off the board, you don't have Mike, you don't have Mike Williams. And now you're dealing with DeAndre Carr, you're dealing with mostly Austin Eckler being a historic uh, 100 yard or uh, 100 carry, 100 reception running back. You got Josh Palmer. You got uh, Gerald Everett, a tight end. Like, you're, you're, you're not working with a ton of weapons here. The offensive line is banged up. Like, there's excuses to make for her. Having Joe Lombardi in isn't a very great scenario either. Kind of just running a stick and really taking the ball out of Herbert's hands. Really running a pretty conservative short game. Not testing downfield too much. In the moments that they do, it's in moments of desperation. Then you get into the Acho thing where Herbert throws a lot of picks, pick sixes. But when you're throwing with the volume that Herbert throws, he still has one of the lowest interception rates in all of the NFL. That being said, there is something to Tanir's take of you watch the tape on Herbert in 2020, 2021, and you see flashes. And you can see flashes 
out of anyone. You could see flashes out of Baker Mayfield last night. Flashes aren't what make a quarterback. It is the entire package. And while you can kind of make excuses about Herbert's game, the full anointing that has been done of Herbert in recognizing the prospect that he could be ignores what he has currently put out. This is a team with high expectations, not just big names, but household names all over the offense and defense. And they've yet to make the playoffs and they won't make them this year. They're eliminated from winning the AFC West if they lose this week and the Chiefs win. They've got an uphill battle to the wild card. They're behind the New England Patriots, who likely are fighting for their playoff lives against the Raiders next week. Even the Cardinals this week. It's going to be tough for them to make the playoffs this year, and that is now. Three straight years of Herbert starting. Three straight years of no development. And yet, what you see on film... The guy might be paid like a market-setting quarterback come next year alongside Joe Burrow. Because the highs on tape have shown that he's he's earned it. But you can't bet on potential. You've got to bet on the tape that's been shown, I guess. Well, let's take it off the tape, though, for a second. And let's go to the numbers. Because in 2020 and 21, first two, QB, first two years of a QB's career, DYAR, Justin Herbert's third all time. So, I mean, you can't deny the the productivity. Like it wasn't just tape in his first two seasons. It was, he was legit great. Uh, he was behind Dan Marino and Peyton Manning. Like those are the two guys that were better in their first two years, according Decent to- Decent names. Yeah. Like, and then he's right ahead of Patrick Mahomes, Ben Roethlisberger, Matt Ryan. So it's good company all the way around. This year he's 20th in DYAR. Like there's- legitimate evidence to say that he's regressed this year and we can blame all we want of that on missing receivers offensive line and tatters defense not you know putting him in a position to control the game script there's lots of mitigating factors but at some point if he's going to be that transcendent quarterback he's got to rise above all that whereas we've seen you know talented quarterbacks struggle in bad situations their whole career it may not be entirely fair but it's just something to ponder. It's like, okay, maybe if we do want to pay him like, you know, Joe Burrow is going to get paid, like Patrick Mahomes already has been paid, it would be nice to see next year him rise above bad circumstances, be back in the top five, top seven DYAR, DVOA, and then we'll start, you know, thinking about that that Justin Herbert living up to the prospect pedigree that he's had. I'm willing to give him this year, but I, I don't think it's unfair to say that this year has been a disappointment in spite of all the things that have gone wrong. It'll be interesting to see what they do at the coaching position, especially. Uh, I think regardless, Lombardi's gone this year, but once you have three straight years of expectation, you can only play the injury card for so long. And uh, you've, you've got it for one year, might buy a one year more, but like your window's closing on fix on, you know, having this team built while, or, or sorry, having this team under a cap controlled Justin Herbert contract and you have money. Oh, Chargers, it's still right in front of you. Go make the playoffs this year, right? Like we're acting as if this season's a failure already. They've still got their season in front of them. They're one game out right now, but I mean, come on, I'm go do it. I'm close Justin to Herbert, go do it. Let's just stop all this debate right now. Beat the dolphins this week. Take that wild card spot back. Come on. I'm about as close to punting as Brandon Staley is on fourth and short in neutral territory this year. 
Moving on to our fantasy section. Friends of the show. Getting an eventual ad read toward the end. Underdog Fantasy. Coming in with a hot one. The New York Jets rookie receiver, Garrett Wilson. Let's hear it from him. This is the Amon Ross St. Brown of 2022. Breaking away, Garrett Wilson. Wilson, a big play downfield. He's going to get fed. He's going to create big plays, making difficult catch after difficult catch. You knew the way to get out of this hole was to start featuring Garrett Wilson. And on the day, finishes with a monstrous eight receptions, 162 yards. He's like the perfect blend for fantasy. You're going to get these humongous target games. Coming into this, he was averaging 17 and a half expected half PPR points in non-Zach Wilson starts. And that's only going to improve with 15 targets. Garrett Wilson didn't even have his first catch until the second quarter, you know, and he finishes with eight for 162. 15 targets. Title of this video, Garrett Wilson is a league winner. Put it on the board. I mean, maybe it's a little hot, but I agree with it. So that's the thing. Like, you know, and, and I don't want to seem like the guy who's always saying, I don't agree with takes on this show. Maybe sometimes it, it leans that way. I don't want to be that guy. And I'm going to firmly come down on the side on this one of, I, I fully agree. Because I think Zach Wilson was bringing him down so much. Uh, and I, I mean, it's a good, it's an apt comparison. Amon Ross St. Brown really comes to life last year, specifically around this time last year. But that's the number, right, Kale? 15 targets last week for Garrett Wilson. You know, they're not going to be coming from 19 points behind every week. But you just look at the amount of things this guy's able to do in the passing game. There's no route he can't run. Um, like they said, you're going to get big plays, but you're also going to get consistent volume, short passes, racking up the PPR points. Um, he just, like, fits all the bills for, like, a, a rookie late-season surge wide receiver. I even... Uh, in our staff picks column last week, was still holding out hope for his value in the rookie of the year conversation, which if Kenneth Walker does end up missing time with injury, I think all of a sudden Garrett Wilson starts to be a really good pick for offensive rookie of the year. So um, it's it's like if you're looking for a rookie receiver to do it, it's between him and Christian Watson. And Christian Watson, as much as I love him, and he's you know gotten me eight touchdowns in the last four weeks as a Christian Watson owner, um, the conversion rate is ridiculous, right? Like it's it's those eight touchdowns on I think sixteen catches. So if you're looking for consistency, Garrett Wilson's your guy. See, that's where I fade. Like that's where like the high volume is very interesting. Like the eight touchdowns on sixteen catches is crazy. The like what he's been able to produce as a rookie is not. that being said. Skeptical, skeptical about the sustainability of a Mike White. We are at the point in the Mike White cycle. Really good game, game one. Game taken out of your hands a little bit in the loss. Buffalo Bills. It's the exact same trajectory we had in 2021. It's what killed the Mike White movement in 2021. Granted, very different game in 2022 against the Minnesota Vikings throwing for massive volume. The game was very much not taken out of his hands. Last time around, I think he threw like 17 times against that. He, got hurt. he missed, he missed like the last. Oh no, Flacco came in. You're right. First. Still. Buffalo really knew how to shut him down, but they're shoot. They're really targeting downfield more. Really doing a lot more. I don't think this is a good game for this one to happen. That being said though, 
There's some interesting stuff with just the rest of the Jets receiving core. Like Elijah Moore is back in the mix, at least a little bit. Didn't have the input against the Vikings. But like he's having, like when he's getting the ball, especially against that Chicago game, he has that big bounce-off catch for 42 yards. He's getting targeted downfield. Interesting stat for Corey Davis. 92% of his catches are for first downs or touchdowns. Like he is being targeted in critical, critical moments. If you're going to get Garrett Wilson as the volume guy, the volume guy is who's going to get targeted by the CB1. Like, he's going to, like, will he start getting tougher matchups? Will he now get less production because he's getting those tougher matchups? But who are the CB1s he's going to be seeing, Kale? Like, look, yeah, this Bills game is tough. Anyway, you slice it for the Jets and for Mike White and for all the reasons you just enumerated. Then they go play Lions, Jaguars, Seahawks. That's your fantasy playoff slate for Garrett Wilson. You like that a little bit? You think maybe he might put up some points against the Lions, Jaguars, and Seahawks? I do. Jackson, we cannot be the arbiters of takes without putting takes out ourselves. We've got to leave ourselves vulnerable. We've got to put ourselves out there. Here are our takes that we've got to just throw out to the masses, chum up the waters a bit. Jackson, lead us off. So I had a different take that wasn't very hot this week. I'll just admit it. Um, I, you know, I was planning on just using my pick from the staff picks this week, saying I liked the Bucks as my upset of the week against the 49ers. We kind of already talked about that game in this show. A take came to me in the 11th hour, Kale, as we were about to hop online. Just one of those like shower thoughts, you know? This just popped in my head. I was like, we saw this Deshaun Watson game how it went, how poorly he played in his first action back. And granted, I don't think any of us think he's going to be that bad for the remainder of the year and moving forward. But I was, it got me to thinking, what if in five years, when all is said and done, we're looking back on this Deshaun Watson trade and it's as bad, if not worse, than the Broncos trade for Russell Wilson. And we've already poured dirt on the casket of the Russell Wilson trade, we've said, could be one of the worst trades ever. When you look at this Watson trade, it could be equally bad. It could be worse. And let me lay that out for you. The Browns give up in exchange for Deshaun Watson. 2022 first rounder already been used. Uh, they took a guard who hasn't been very good. I can't even remember his name. So that part hasn't necessarily worked out too well yet. The 15th overall pick. 2023 and 2024 first rounders. So that already is more than the Broncos have given up. The Broncos gave up two first rounders. You're giving up three. You're also giving up a 2022 fourth rounder, a 2023 third rounder, and a 2022 or 2024 fourth rounder. Broncos gave up two seconds in the deal. So I think the picks work out to be a battle wash. Deshaun Watson, six years younger than Russell Wilson. That benefits you. But then you look at the contract side of things. Deshaun Watson. I mean, we already talked about Russell Wilson. Okay, $31 million dead cap hit in 2026. That stinks. Deshaun Watson, the same year, not a $31 million dead cap hit, a $54 million dead cap hit. That's a, that's a lot of money, Kale. They made him the highest paid guaranteed quarterback in the history of football. 
Um, and we talked about the moral implications of how, you know, that's just not good practice to do so when a guy was, you know, actively in dozens of court procedures. But just from a football standpoint, I think this is going to work out to be one of the worst trades of all time. I'm going to put my flag in the ground on this one. Jackson, the numbers get bad. He is the highest paid quarterback in 2023, 2024. He's third highest in 2025, where Rodgers and Russ both eclipse him. And then 2026, he's also third behind Russ and Kyler Murray. Now, there's two elements of this where I first off, fully agree. Like, like it, it is it is a it is a spicy, spicy take, and one that I see is very plausible. Because, first off, that is insane amount. Like, once you cross that 20% threshold for a singular cap hit, you're getting into very steep territory. The 21.3 and the 21.5 cap hits in 2023 and 2024, respectively, are, are damaging. Like, the guys you would use to supplement that cost you now can no longer like bank on because you've given up picks in that year. Next year, you're paying Miles Garrett a cap hit of 29.1 mil. You've got a lot like you've got, you know, Joel Batonio, 14.6, John Johnson, 13.5 mil, Jedrick Wills, 6.2, Nick Chubb, 14.8. Mari Cooper, 23.7. Like, you're getting some massive, massive cap hits in there just next year alone. You got 44 guys on the roster. This is a team you're basically stuck with and you haven't exactly performed well. The second aspect of this is that, like, how much can Watson really adjust? Hasn't played football in almost two calendar years. Connor Orr from Sports Illustrated put out a really fantastic piece explaining just how much the league has kind of passed him by in those two years. Like he thrived against an era dominated by cover three defenses. Like now you're getting more into like very conservative pass defenses. You're also seeing pass defense numbers shoot up the board. Deshaun is like a pretty mobile quarterback, not truly as dual threat as a, as a Lamar or Jalen Hurts, but like has has legs. Like, can the arm stay up? He also, most of the time at Houston, played an offense is very based and very like derivative of the offense played at Clemson. So he hasn't exactly like adapted to new offenses in his time in the NFL. Like, can he adjust to a Kevin Stefanski off? We, we've we've got small sample sizes here and there. We've got a one-game regular season sample size to work with, but, like, in the preseason and this one game against the Houston Texans, he's looked bad. How much longer can he look bad before this albatross of an NFL contract becomes unjustifiable? Yeah, and let's take – I mean, again, we're taking – um, the moral implications out of it. Let's assume nothing ever happened, right? I think what? we know. I think we know where we both like. Yeah. That is, we know where early, we stand. Yeah, we know where we stand on that. We don't have to rehash it. But 
let's for the sake of argument, just say we're talking about this from a football perspective. What does Deshaun Watson have to do to justify this deal? I think he has to bring them to a Super Bowl. I think that like, otherwise this deal was a complete failure. And I don't think he can do that. And whether or not that's because he's not the same guy he was or because they won't be able to build the roster around him, I think the gamble they took with this deal is not going to pay off. Maybe he won't be as obviously bad as Russell Wilson over the next four years, but I think he's going to be, he's going to struggle enough to make this absolute, as you said, albatross of a deal look crazy in hindsight. Jackson. Fantastic take. Very spicy. Very thought provoking. I've got one. Maybe spicy, maybe a bit more derivative. And maybe flies in the face. Uh, no, I guess no. I, I was firmly devil's advocate. I'm not. I'm not flying in the face of anything I said earlier in this show. Jackson, I believe that right now, present moment, the Dallas Cowboys scare me more than the Philadelphia Eagles. Jalen Hurts has been transcendent this year. This has been a fantastic, really special offer. Defense has been on another level. You have turnover machines in James Bradbury, CJ Gardner-Johnson. Like the player bringing in guys like Linval Joseph and Dominican Sue alongside Jordan Davis have made this a brick wall of a defense to run against. The the twenty third rush DVOA is not indicative of what they currently are. But I just look at this offense that Dallas has since introducing Dak back into the system, and it's special. And you couple that with the best defense in the league, the current depot in Micah Parsons, a secondary that is playing out of this world. And on top of it, a very underrated part, a top five special team, a a return man in Noah Brown, who in the kickoff return and punt return game can kind of set you up wherever you need to be. Constantly creating short fields for this Dallas team. It is the X factor that helps. Like, listen, special teams is one eighth of the total DVOA pie, and it feels like a big slice for Dallas. Just when it gets down to playoffs and we get down to current roster construction. The Cowboys are getting a little bit healthier. Eagles are getting a little bit banged up. I just think come playoff, like the only thing that is taking the Cowboys away from me in this current structure is a is about a 25-year stretch where they cannot get past the divisional round. If there was not a a curse of the Bambino, a a, a Chicago Cubs-esque, like decades and decades curse level sort of existential plan against them, I'd be picking them outright to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. It is truly the only thing holding me back from that. Yeah, and here's the problem, Kale, is I believe in that stuff. I see it play out in this league in particular all the time, uh, whether that's like the Vikings tortured history um, with the Blair Walsh missed field goal. I get Minnesota Miracle kind of reverses it, but they they – 
you know, pissed away the goodwill from the Minnesota Miracle pretty quick the following week. Uh, whether it's, you know, the Chargers missing all their late game field goals in recent years. Um, all these things, I think, actually exist. Uh, like, there is some karma involved. And you look at some of the ways that Dallas has lost these games, whether it was the Dez catch, whether it was the Mason Crosby, you know, double hook field goal that somehow went in, uh, or last year, Dak Prescott, uh, quarterback sneaking and running out of time, not being able to spike the ball. Like, there's a lot of... There's a lot of karma at play here with the Cowboys in the playoffs. That being said, I'm not going to disagree with this take fully because a couple weeks ago on this very show, I said that my take was Cowboys come back and win this division, and I can still see that happening. It's probably going to take an Eagles unexpected loss somewhere along the line. I thought that was going to be Tennessee, and it wasn't. Uh, so now I'm not as in on that take anymore, but I could still see it happening. Maybe they lose to the Giants this week. They lost to them last year, so it's not completely impossible. And yeah, I, I, I see it. I, I see all the dominance from the Cowboys. I've seen all the offensive improvements they've made since Dak came back. So happy that we never have to talk about Cooper Rush taking over that job ever again. Uh, but that playoff history is, is, as with you, what worries me with this team. It's, it's, true, it's truly the only thing. And I also have a bit of worry about how, like... There's going to be a lot of Cowboys buying just based off of a romp against the Vikings that we know isn't that great. Not no, but like have. We have our suspicions. That it's not that great. Yeah. <laughs> a close game against the Giants that we're just going to maybe throw out because it was short week Thanksgiving. A romp against the Colts. And then you get Houston at Jacksonville. Jackson, that week 16 game against the Philadelphia Eagles is going to be very interesting. Uh, and then at Tennessee, at Washington, take you into the playoffs. If they take care of business in those games, it'll uh, it listen, it'll help Philadelphia a lot to have that first round bye. But on just a week-to-week basis in the postseason, if we're just doing blind resume, if we get rid of, of the, the 25 years of precedence of this Again, curse that they are going through. I am I am firmly taking Dallas in most matchups. I want to put my faith in them this year. If they lose to the 500 Tampa Bay Bucks in the first round of the playoffs this year, after all that we've instilled in them from a faith perspective, I'm, I'm never, never betting on the Dallas team. I'm ever. never betting on them again. <laughs> <laughs> They've lost. It, it is a fool me once, shame on you. A fool me 700 times. <laughs> Shame on me. That, That'll that, do that it. fifth loss is what really does it for us. Uh, yeah, exactly. That'll do it for us at The Takeaway. Thank you, as always, for listening. Highly recommend you check out all of the resources and all of the outlets that we have cited in the comments down below. Want to give a shout-out to one of the outlets that we cited and the sponsor of this show, Underdog Fantasy. Play on Underdog Fantasy with us and double your first deposit up to $100 with promo code OUTSIDERS. Are your season-long fantasy teams floundering? Play Underdog's Battle Royale, a fast six-round weekly fantasy football draft with easier chances to win than traditional daily fantasy sports sites. You can even win $50,000 if you grab first place. You can also try their Pick'em game, where you can easily pick players' chances to go higher or lower 
than projected stat lines, even in states where traditional prop bets currently aren't available. Underdog is the fastest growing fantasy site around. Join the fun over at underdogfantasy.com or download Underdog in the App Store and use promo code OUTSIDERS now to double your first deposit up to $100. There you have it, folks. Thank you, as always, for listening. Hit that subscribe button down on the YouTube. Give us a like. It helps us a lot and goes a long way. For Jackson, I'm Kale. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we will see you next week.